Welcome to a new series of the Late Fragments podcast. In this first episode, I will be talking religion, money, sex and politics with Dame Stephanie Shirley. A child refugee who at five years old came to England without her parents on the kinder transport, Dame Stephanie went on to found an all-woman software company that pioneered remote working and redefined the expectations and opportunities for working women at the time. Ultimately valued at almost $3 billion, it made 70 of her staff millionaires. Since retiring, her work has been in philanthropy, with a particular focus on IT and autism. The inspiration behind her work in the field of autism is her late son Giles, who was himself born with very complex needs. Since his death, aged 35 in 1998, of a seizure from his condition, his mother has worked tirelessly to improve the lives of those like him, giving away the majority of her wealth, nearly £70 million in total, to causes close to her heart. One of her proudest achievements, she says, is being the first person to drop out of the Sunday Times Rich List as a direct result of her philanthropy. Now in her 90th year, Dame Stephanie is showing absolutely no sign of letting up. The more I give, she says, the richer my life becomes. I hope you enjoy listening. Dame Stephanie Shirley, welcome to the podcast. Chloe, thank you for having me. I'm going to start with a quote that I read in which you said, All that I am stems from the day in 1939 when, aged five, I got onto a train from Vienna. This is very true. Um, And oddly enough, the older I get, the more true it becomes. It seems to me that my whole life has been driven by the trauma of my childhood. Um, I arrived in England in 1939, just on the brink of war, uh, five years old, clutching the hand of my nine-year-old sister on a kinder transport from Vienna. And that two-and-a-half-day journey was of itself quite traumatic, but it was organised. I mean, I was not in fear of my life. Um, But when we arrived in England... I was faced with this enormous change of a new family, people I didn't know at all, um, new food, new language, new everything, and really learnt how to cope with change. That was so terrific. I mean, it was traumatic. I had um, therapy to help me through it later on. Um, but it also had some positive things. It, it could have taken me down into the depths of despond, uh, but in fact, it, it also gave me opportunities to develop and grow. And I think pain allows you to grow. I also realised that no change can be as big as change as that that happened to me. And so I'm not frightened of change. I enjoy change and realise as the years have gone on that I'm one of the people who who should be and need to drive change because I have ideas and I want to make them fruition. And you still have ideas and you still want to make them fruition. Oh, yes, I'm as active today as as mentally. I'm conscious of... I'm certainly conscious of my own mortality. But... um, 
I really need to make sure that the life that was saved was worth saving. And that has given me a, a, a rather different view on life in that um, I don't fritter my time away. I've become quite a serious person. Uh, I, I know that um, I need to justify my own existence. You don't talk about politics as a matter of principle, but do you forgive the extremists who set your life on its course? Well, I do now, Chloe, but it took me a long, long time, and I'm talking about decades. Uh, for example, immediately post-war, um, Germany, who really made, which really made big effort to come to terms with its Nazi past, um, they offered restitution uh, major restitution, you know, enough to buy a house um, to people who would go back to Germany or people who would um, accept restitution for... It was literally so much for a lost parent, so much for a lost sister, sibling, and so much. Um, and I started off going through this, and I was feeling quite embittered, and, and uh, I felt it was like blood money, and uh, eventually pulled out of the application, which was, you know, ponderous through through solicitors. Um, but recently, like two or three years ago, um, I heard again from the German government they were paying, um, I forget the total amount, to the kinder transport children who were still alive. And they were estimated about two or three years ago to be about a thousand worldwide and about a hundred in England. I mean, it, you know, there were an awful lot of us and um, they were paying some money um, as restitution. And I, my reaction was quite different. I, I, I accepted, I hope gracefully, I wrote a nice letter of thanks, um, and um, I put the money into uh, a charity called Safe Passage, which looks after today's child refugees. Um, and then a year later, the, there was money being paid to help people through the recession, um, and through the energy crisis and I'm just waiting for another payment now and again I shall do the same, give it to Safe Passage because I'm no longer in need uh, but I, I accept the gesture, it is a gesture of reconciliation and it's long past, I have changed, Germany has changed, thank goodness. Have you been back? Do you go back to Germany? I, at one time I swore I would never set foot on German soil again um, but then my father had a job there, and in order to maintain contact with him, I needed to go um, to Germany and, and did, so I got over that. Um, I went back to Vienna very much as a, um, I, I needed to lay, I needed to sort of come to terms with my, with my past and went to Vienna. And as soon as I got there, which was a city that I did remember, um, I felt the weight of the past drop from my shoulders. It was, I realized that the city didn't mean anything to me. I was not a returning emigre. I was a, an English schoolgirl going on holiday. And so the, you, you change over the years. And uh, what worries me as an octogenarian um, is that you become settled into something and stop changing. I think change is very valuable. 
uh, I have a very low boredom threshold, so change around me is, is important. You began your life in a well-off family, I believe. Can you tell me a little bit about your parents and your early childhood? Well, my parents weren't, weren't wealthy. They were, they were comfortable, I suppose. My father was a, was a judge, a very young judge at the age of 30. My mother didn't work. She had previously trained as a tailor. Um, we lived a nice, comfortable life with nice, nice house, um, two servants, um, and we referred to them as servants. They were very much um, not like Kay, who looks after me here and is like a daughter. Um, but um, my foster parents were really comfortable in a different way. They, they were self-made. Uncle, we call them aunt, auntie and uncle, um, and bless them, they were absolutely lovely. Uh, and I am their child in all but birth, uh, so their influence is much stronger, uh, much more conventional, less intellectual, um, but with good values. Um, I spent some of my school days in a Roman Catholic convent, and that, I think, gave set some of my values, although I have lost all religion that I ever had, uh, and I'm now firmly an agnostic. Uh, I, I wouldn't say atheist, but firmly agnostic. Do you remember the shock of living with less than you had been born with? I, I don't think five, six-year-old is really conscious of that. That's how the world is. That's just what food is. That's what... Uh, in, in no way did I feel deprived, ever. Your mother arrived in England in 1940, I believe, and yes. had to endure quite real financial struggle when she was here. How much do you think you were driven forward, certainly in a desire for an education, which I believe you had very strongly as a, as a way out of poverty? Somehow from my parents or my foster parents, I, I'd got that firm message that education is the way out of poverty. Money is not terribly important to me, um, especially once you're not short of it. Um, it really becomes a, a meaningless measure that other people use, and I know it's important because of that. Uh, that is the measure they use, but it's not one that I use. My, my relationship to money is, is I, I know, peculiar. It, it just um, is something that everybody uses, and I have now. I'm not worried about money at all. And it is lovely to, when you spoil a dress or something, not to have the sheer worry of, my God, that's my dress gone. It's just a dress gone and you get another one. So I enjoy my wealth. Um, I try to use it in a socially um, positive way. Does it matter, money, at the end of the day? Yes, I think it does. Um, I found it quite hard to be um, a positive person when I really was struggling financially. Uh, my first job, I earned £215 a year. Now, I mean, inflation has made nonsense of that, of course. Um, but, you know, we were poor. Uh, we, you know, you were watching every penny. You were walking instead of taking the bus. Um, so I enjoy my wealth now. I really try to... Um, and I try to share it. You've said before, the more I give, 
the richer your life becomes. That is so, so true. I get so much pleasure from the money that I've given away. For, I mean, I enjoyed business. Uh, I really did, especially in the early days. When your projects that you're doing are, are, are social projects, when you're, you're investing in people, where you're um, experimenting with, with how to create wealth for people with, whose lifestyle is... Uh, very poor, and mainly I work with autistic charities, um, so that it's you don't get much return um, from them. So it's the sheer um, giving. I was brought up Christian, and um, there's a bit you know um, it's better to give than to receive. Um, and as a child, I thought this is absolute nonsense. You know, no, I want, I want, I want. Um, but my goodness, it is it is true. I get far more pleasure from from my, and, and I get a lifestyle from from my charitable activities. In what sense? In the sense, it's what I do. It's yes. what I think about when I get up in the morning. It's how I spend my time. Um, it's how I uh, view the world through the eyes of the, the, this might be useful for. So I'd like that picture for that charity or whatever it is. And, and when it happens, and it, it happens very slowly, you know, you don't get this immediate return, but um, I, I visit one of my charities and you sort of see a child that sort of scrunched up and, and aggressive and, and uh, sudden, not suddenly, but have, in the weeks since I've seen them, uh, suddenly are, are calmer. They're sitting there's even a little smile on their face and you sort of think this is what it's all about these children that you help are autistic as your son giles was yes so every day that you're helping one of them i imagine you feel that you're helping him too i don't know i don't think i'm so sentimental about doing things in his name or anything like that um but, I mean, I know about autism. I can talk to parents. I've been through the same sort of hell that they have been through, um, trying to rear a, a, an autistic child. What do you think, in an increasingly strained financial reality, what do you think is the future of philanthropy? Well, philanthropists, we're not answerable to anybody else. So we do have the um, opportunity to be innovative, uh, to experiment, uh, the things that we do that are um, successful, whatever success means in that context, um, can be picked up by government uh, and made into policies. And that's very satisfying when you see um, a whole change. In, in, but, I mean, that happens over a decade or two decades to see that change happen and, and the, the, the knowledge about autism moving from that this is a psychological disorder um, brought on by poor parenting, which is particularly nasty, um, but rather um, it's, it's, we now know that it's a brain disorder. We now know that 80% of it comes from genetics. Uh, the other 20% is a totally... Nobody knows yet. That's what we're working on, to see what, to understand what autism is as distinct from what it looks like. 
Was that something you and your husband, Derek, were made to feel, that it was a product of poor parenting? Oh, yes, we were of that generation. I mean, Giles was born in 1963, um, so that's, you know, a different society. Do you believe that any individual can make a difference? Yes, I do. It's a sort of credo, really. You can be, make a difference by what you do or by who you are. And not necessarily financially. I mean, you've given a lot of money away, but you've also made a great difference with how and who you are. I would like to think so. I think particularly as regards women. I've been working for women's empowerment now for 50-odd years, and uh, I really feel that long-term that is my legacy, or a legacy. Um, I've done... I'm a major player in the autism field in the UK and probably internationally, Um, but my work for women has been more important. about sex, about your sex, about your womanhood. Can you, um, how crucial a part of your story and your great success has the fight for equality been? Well, I I, I date from a generation that wasn't educated to the same level as boys, so that I wanted to study mathematics and this was not available in the little primary school that I went to. So I had to sit sit for a scholarship and get a, um, a, a place at a grammar school. And then we moved location, and again, I was at a school that didn't teach science at all. The only science thought respectable for for girls uh, was botany, the study of plants. Um, So I really had to struggle to get tuition in mathematics. But somebody listened to me, and they arranged for me to attend the boys' school in order to get my mathematics tuition. And that was a salutary forerunner of the... Um, sexism that uh, you know there was a lot of cat calls and whistling as I walked in every day it was it wasn't very pleasant uh, but I did get my tuition and that was a very positive thing once I got into the workforce and I needed mathematics to to move into computing of course which is where I uh, really placed myself as a scientist um, once I got there the sexism I must say appalled me um, I worked for the the post office research station at Dollis Hill, which sounds somewhat quaint, um, but um, it was in fact a hotbed of of scientific uh, development at the time, and I was working on early computers there. Um, And it was horrified to find that there were two salary scales. Um, It went by age and grade, one but one scale for men and another lower scale for women and this really appalled me and I became relatively aggressive about it, assertive shall we say um, when strong young men would offer to carry my equipment for me um, I used to reply somewhat aggressively I suppose 
um, I believe in equal pay and will carry my own things. Um, and, you know, it is a lesson that women have to learn if you want equal acceptance in the world you do have to do an equal job and not expect things to be made nice and soft for you just because you're young and pretty if we go back to 1962 and your starting of your business freelance programmers can you just explain to me and to the podcast what your thinking was behind that it was really a campaign for women it wasn't certainly wasn't to make money um it was um, I was so sick and tired of the sexism of the workplace and I found it in the post office research station which is a wonderful employer I found it in <coughs> my second employer which was a small computer company very, very early on called Computer Developments and I really, I don't know, something happened one day and I went home and said, I, I, I can't have, I, I'm going to set up an organisation that is um, the sort of organisation that I would like to work for, that is family friendly, that is flexible to the extreme, that really um, gives uh, opportunities regardless of, of, of where, they, where they come from, whether it's from somebody in a wheelchair um, or, or, or somebody of, of some sexual orientation, which I don't usually understand. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, they're people there, and I like people. And um, they, they really have to be um, full members of, of society if I'm to feel comfortable. And you started the business from your kitchen table... And there was some, a story that really resonated with me um, because I remember when I went freelance myself, um, I would be doing interviews on the phone and if my child started crying, often I would just close several doors between me and him to carry on with the professional facade. So I believe that you had a recording. I did. Can you tell me about that? Part of being professional is actually appearing to be professional and it gives you confidence if you know that you're coming over as professional. Um, and when my son was making a noise, and he frequently did, uh, I would feed him Smarties to keep him quiet. Uh, but also I would play in the background a tape recorder of, of office noises, people bashing on, on hard, hard keys, um, with, with old-fashioned typewriters as they were then. Um, people think that working from home is something to do with the technology, which certainly helps. Um, but in fact, it is a question of management style. There wasn't technology then in the same way that oh, there is we, now. Oh, we had a course. telephone. I had a, um, a winsomely called party line, which meant I shared the telephone with somebody else an unknown person who must have been a bit upset because I use the phone a lot but working from home has suited me as I think it has you very much so well it allowed it allows one to to be a mother and to have a career yes yes and that's and, and to be good at both and to be good at both yes what would your advice be to young women today who are embarking on careers and who inevitably have their children around the age that their career is just taking off? Well, at one time we thought if we didn't rear our children ourselves, we were rearing um, 
juvenile delinquents. But I think that sort of thinking has gone past. Uh, we know that uh, child, good child care is perfectly acceptable. Um, and we know that it's important for women to look after their own, be, being rather selfish and look after their own well-being. And for many of us, that means keeping an intellectual activity alive and well. Working motherhood is still not an easy balance to strike, even, even now. What would you say to someone who was struggling to balance the two things? I think to be selfish, um, get more help, um, get more childcare, um, change that balance so that it, it does become stable. I'm interested to know why you're known as Steve. In the early days of the business, um, I would be writing letters, this is in the days of letters before email, um, about 10 a week um, to prospective clients, um, basically introducing my company's services. And I thought they were good letters and they were beautifully typed. Um, but uh, they got no response whatsoever. And I was getting very depressed about this. And my dear husband, my late husband, um, suggested that I um, stop signing them with this double feminine of Stephanie Shirley. Um, but call myself Steve Shirley, which Steve being a sort of family nickname. Um, and I started writing the same sort of letters, signing them as Steve. And surprise, surprise, they actually got some response. Um, and I began to get interviews and so eventually began to get some work. So I've been Steve ever since. Can I talk to you about your husband who you've referred to as the rock on which my life was built? And you and he were married, I believe, for 60, Six, 62 years. 62 years. That was following an epic courtship of six years. So we were together for a long time. How much of an impact did that marriage have on your success? Oh, I think without a stable marriage, I, I would never have made um, any business success. Um, it would have torn, torn us apart. I mean, I was very lucky to find a man who welcomed a woman like me at a time when um, emancipated women were, were sort of in, in the shadows. Um, I was lucky. We, we got on well on all the, the big things, on all the important things. We would sort of argue to the death about a, a, a lampshade or something like that. But um, he, he was my rock and I miss him terribly. Um, but he was, his death was not unexpected. He was 97. And although he didn't die in my arms, we, he did die holding my hands. Um, and um, I, I feel I've been very lucky with him. What would you say was the secret of a successful marriage? Complementarity, if that's the right word. Um, being different, not being too similar. Um, I, I think leading your own life and having doing things and activities and interests that are not always as a couple, so that my, my business life really was is something that I've done, um, and Derek was 
supportive. You know, he might ask how something had gone, but n- nothing more than that. You also went through a shared tragedy, which was the loss of your son. Yes, um, that, I say of course, because I've thought about it a lot, was a far greater loss than Derek's death. My son died of his first night seizure from epilepsy um, and at the age of 35, and it did cost me a lot. It, I, I really lost all momentum. I was in the middle of a major project. Um, I did nothing except drink cups of tea, I think, uh, for se- several months. Uh, it was about the best part of a year before I was really back at work. Um, it, it, the loss of a child is unbelievably pain, painful. Um, and um, it sounds disloyal, but it isn't. Um, I find that Derek's loss has affected me less than I expected because I've been through Giles' loss. And when you've got a child without parents, um, they're called orphans. Um, When you've got parents without a child, there's no word for them at all. talk now about religion and my first question is a simple one do you believe in God and the short answer is no um, I was born a Jew um, I was brought up basically an Anglican Christian um, I attended a Roman Catholic convent for a couple of years um, I spent many years searching for a God or gods um, and uh, never really found anything. Um, so now I'm a, an agnostic. Um, I try to lead a spiritual life, um, by which I mean I focus on the non-material aspects of life. Um, I try to lead what is a good life, and I think most of us want to become a good person. In your autobiography, you do mention that that Giles's death made Derek lose his faith. Oh, yes. And that it helped you find a faith, not a faith in God, but a faith in finding meaning. When Giles's difference really became apparent, and, and he was extremely difficult, I mean, he was... I, 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 I mean, I thought at one time he would be possessed, um, you know, and I mean, seriously thought of having him exercised, um, which for an agnostic is, is you know, g- getting pretty desperate. Um, I mean, he did finish up in, in a mental health hospital and an asylum, really. 
has spent a third of his life in, in, in hospital. What was I going to say? Um, when he was born, I, I definitely felt, well, this, this just proves that there isn't a God because no God would let a child like this be born. Um, when Giles died, Derek reacted as, as if it was entirely negative, whereas I saw it as bittersweet. Um, it was a horrendous loss, but I know we no longer had the worry of what would happen to him after our death, and there was certainly an element of, of relief, um, certainly the relief, relief from stress or, or was was quite profound. You still lead a very active, very fulfilled life. Well, I hope to be one of those super ages. Do you? Yes. <laughs> How old would you like to get to? <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's not so much the actual age, but remaining much younger than your chronological years, um, I, I think is worth doing. If you can keep going, keep working, keep active. What's the secret to that? Well, some of it is boring stuff like, you know, good genes, eating sensibly, not smoking, not drinking. I swim a quarter of a mile twice a week. Um, you know, I keep, I keep going. And do you work every day? Pretty well, yes. It may be a short day. And do you feel, looping back, and I'm sure the answer is yes, that you have lived a life that was worth saving? Yes, there's always more to be done. What would you like to do? I would like to see more progress in the autism field. And you wonder, is, is there anything else I can do? I've started a care charity, I've started a school, I've started a, a research charity and take them all to sustainability, you know, managerially and financially independent of me. Are there other things that I can do? I started, I co-founded something called Music for Autism. Um, I uh, set up the all-party parliamentary group on autism. So I've moved things forward in, in quite a different way and I still think, are there, are there new things that I could do? Thank you for listening to the Late Fragments podcast. If you're interested in hearing more about Autistica and Dame Stephanie's other charitable works, you'll find all the relevant information in the podcast notes. And if you're enjoying the podcast and would like to hear more, please do subscribe on your podcast app of choice. In the next episode, I'll be talking to the Reverend Jonathan Aitken about politics, prison and finding God. In the meantime, my thanks to Harry Dundas for the sound production and original score. Until next time, goodbye.